Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, then 8 through 15. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country and the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahaman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, this morning, uh, I was paid a compliment that every um, preacher covets. Someone said, I remember what you said last week. And uh, so for those of you who weren't here last week or who don't remember uh, or weren't with us, I'll briefly just um, connect the dots of two messages in a row. How do you, you know, are they related? They are related in a way because last week we talked about um, Jesus's instruction and his admonition and uh, his warning to us that the wisdom is found in the doing of his word, not just the knowing of his word. That folly is actually uh, found not just in ignorance of not knowing what God has said, but actually knowing what God has said and not doing and living in line with it. And so the, the admonition last week was to, to do, to be doers of the word and not just hearers or knowers or studiers only. This week uh, has, has to do with a little bit more of a type of doing, a specific type of obedience, not just learning what Jesus said, but as disciples learning to obey what he said. And Paul said that he'd been given the apostleship for a certain type of obedience. If you look in Romans 1 and Romans 16, the opening and closing of this great uh, epistle of the gospel of God's grace, Paul says that he was given an apostleship to bring about obedience, but a particular type of obedience, the obedience of faith. And so this morning we're going to look at um, an illustration of what it means to bring about the obedience of faith. And the book of Judges is a dark and discouraging book for the most part. It's not one that 
Um, uh, most daily devotions uh, are centered around, uh, if you're looking to, uh, for springtime encouragement, the book of Judges usually isn't the first place you turn. Um, it begins uh, well, as we're looking at here, but it turns uh, dark and dismal and discouraging very quickly, uh, and it ends in um, some of the most depressing and uh, disturbing uh, passages of Scripture, in all of Scripture. And um, so why, why this passage? Well, um, this morning I, I felt like it was uh, an opportunity to think about what it, w- what it would mean to bring about the obedience of faith in our lives. And, and um, this particular story is actually told twice, almost verbatim. This account is given in, in, jo- in Joshua chapter 15, the capture of this city, um, Caleb's nephew uh, being uh, betrothed to his daughter. It, almost word for word it's told in Joshua, and then yet it's recounted again here. And uh, one of the things that we want to do as we study Scripture is to learn from things that are repeated and that are emphasized and try to ask why is this particular story uh, illustrated and uh, lifted up for us to study. Uh, before we get to the city of Debir, you see that this opening section is Judah is conquering, and what the author of Judges is pointing out is that of all the folly and all the tragedy that we see here, um, the tragedy of the human condition, so illustrated in the nation of Israel in the book of Judges, where they stumble into cycles of sin, where they uh, are blessed by God and then become complacent and then become idolatrous and then become enslaved and then begin to cry out again, and then God raises up a deliverer to set them free from their sin and from their captivity and from their bondage, then they enjoy a season of peace and prosperity, and it's during that time that they become again vulnerable and complacent and then ultimately idolatrous, and then the cycle begins over and over and repeats itself, and those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it as the cliche goes. But here the author wants to show that the fault does not lie with God. Although we can tend to be faithless, he is always faithful. And he has promised uh, Judah that he would be the, um, the one from whom the scepter shall not depart. He would be the one through whom God would ultimately bring uh, the ultimate deliverer. And so Judah leads the deliverance in this conquest after the passing of the torch of Joshua. And he's illustrating that Judah is, again, succeeding as Joshua did, as the mantle has been passed. It was passed from Moses to Joshua, and now it's being passed from Joshua and Caleb into the next generation. And God is continuing to be faithful. They are victorious as they set forth to do what God has asked them to do by faith. And they first strike the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is not the Jerusalem that we think of. Most of us associate it with uh, the Davidic dynasty or the great um, golden era of Israel, the the place of the temple where Solomon uh, built the great temple, where Herod rebuilt the temple, where Jesus walked and as the capital of the nation. Jerusalem wasn't that at this time. It's actually only mentioned once before this in Scripture. And it's in this obscure passage in Genesis 14 where Abraham has to fight against this Canaanite coalition to rescue Lot 
from being captured in this collateral damage of the civil war in the region. And uh, as he rescues him, he meets this king of Salem, Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness. Now he was, the king of righteousness was the ruler over the king or the city of peace. And he was a priest king. And he was so great and so uh, revered by Abraham that he tithed to him. And then this king, priest, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, uh, brings out bread and wine and offers like a communion service with Abraham. And he dines with him and they have fellowship with one another because he was a priest of the God Most High. And what should strike the reader as, as they were uh, getting to this point in the book of Judges is what happened to Jerusalem? What happened? Jeru- Jerusalem is just the city of peace. So Salem is now being called Jerusalem, and it's just the city of peace. What happened to the city of peace that now they're having to go and to strike it by the sword and set it on fire? And I think the quick, uh, simple observation is simply that the king of righteousness is no longer ruling over Salem. And where there, where there is no king of righteousness, there is no peace. And you can do a study, I thought about actually doing this for the message this morning, of the, of the city of Jerusalem through scripture and through history, and that has always been the case. As a king of righteousness comes, the city is established and there is peace and it upholds its namesake. But as it forsakes the king of righteousness, it comes under judgment. And here is the first of one such judgment. After David and the successive kings and the idolatry of the nation, it comes under the judgment of Babylon. After it's rebuilt under Ezra and Nehemiah. In Jesus' day, the, the ultimate king of righteousness comes and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you. Yet they rejected the king of righteousness. And again, it was struck by the sword and fire. Not one stone was left unturned, Jesus said. In 70 AD, again, it came under judgment. And now the sons of the flesh have erected a monument on the place of God's temple. And the city of peace is anything but. It's a city of contention because it's forsaken the king of righteousness. But that's not the main point of the passage. <laughs> because Jerusalem is only given one verse so far in Scripture. It's a, it's a passing thought. It's a passing observation. It's something that you should make note of. The king of righteousness is no longer reigning over the city of peace. And now the city of peace has become the city of contention and destruction. And so as they begin this conquest, Caleb conquers Hebron, formerly Kiriath Arba, this, this felt, the city of fellowship, and then they go against the inhabitants of Debir. Now, what's interesting and what's instructive is that Caleb, who is one of the two faithful spies, one of the, one of the men who, who believed God and took him at his word, that if they entered in the land, that, that as God said, they would have come one way and the enemy would scatter seven. So this, this uh, seasoned saint has been leading a conquest and, and the account in Joshua tells us 
that he goes into the, the area that was allotted to him in the tribe of Judah, and, and he conquers and takes over Hebron, and that's what's been allotted to him. But he doesn't just stop there. And this is instruction for us who are uh, getting older. He doesn't just take the next city. He then enlists the service of the next generation. He could have easily have done more. He didn't just do what he ought to do. He did all that he could do, and he enlisted the next generation. It reminds me of um, Psalm 71, the psalm of the aged. I'm getting gray hair. Um, it's like 50-50 on whether it turns gray or it falls out at this point. But, um, but I'm starting to identify with these older psalms, these psalms of the seasoned saints. And uh, Psalm 71 says, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. See, this is the, the psalm of inheritance, the psalm of heritage, the psalm of... Caleb was a man of faith, and he was a warrior who believed and trusted God, and God honored his faithfulness. And he very easily could have just taken the next city. But he's asking for the next generation to step up. And he's enlisting their help. And notice what his qualifications are. The reward is Oxa, his daughter, which the Hebrew of that kind of means like anklet. She must be like a, a dainty little uh, um, um, thing is, is kind of what I imagine. So she's a prize. But notice what he wants, what the qualifications are for his future son-in-law. It's not worldly success. It's not good looks. It's not fortune or fame. It's not education or um, career. He simply walks, wants him to walk in the faith of his future father-in-law. Whoever takes this city, does that take great military might? Does that take great courage? Not from what's been demonstrated so far, because all you have to do is show up, and God wins the victory for you. All you have to do is put your hand to the sword and step out in faith and trust that what God said is true, and that you have nothing to fear. The enemies of God have everything to fear. So anyone could have actually stepped up to this, this offer. It wasn't that he was the bravest, the smartest, the most capable, the most cunning, the most gifted leader. It was just that he was willing to walk in the faith of his father and take God at his word that if God has called us to something, then as improbable as it may seem, that we should do it. And that's the obedience of faith. That's what Paul says in the New Covenant he was commissioned to bring about. Obedience of faith, the hardest kind of obedience. The obedience that requires you to see what you cannot see, to believe the unbelievable, to trust in the impossible. To take God at his word. 
that loving your enemies is actually the best way to conquer them. That the kindness of God leads to repentance. That forgiveness is more instructive than vengeance. Hard things to believe. But those are the qualifications that Caleb wants for his future son-in-law. A man of faith who will honor the faith of his future father-in-law. And he knows that the best thing that he could provide for his daughter as his responsibility as, his fa- as her father is a man who takes God at his word and is willing to do hard things. That's the kind of man that she can trust to lead her and to provide for her and to protect her. Those are the qualifications. Our, I have a daughter who's around that age, so this is strikes a little too close to home. Maybe I should move on, right? I mean, she was born. I didn't pass out cigars. I packed out. I passed out uh, pink shotgun shells um, to all my fellow fathers and um, let them know if they needed to be um, restocked, just to let me know. Um, because who is worthy of such things? And Caleb does two things for us. He shows us that sometimes the best thing that you can do for the next generation is to, to call them to, to step out into faith and to pass the torch. And to not just assume that as long as you're able that you're called to be the one who does, but you're called to be the one who enables others to do, to walk by faith. And that the best thing that he could do for his daughter and his future grandchildren is to provide them um, and to ensure that their, um, their father or their husband is, is a man of faith. And not someone that just simply knows, as we discussed last week, the word. Not that, some, not that someone's simply educated and well-catechized and maybe knows all the confessional uh, answers and responses, but that someone who has a track record of actually stepping out in faith to do hard things to go to hard places, to go to Lebanon. I could be no more encouraged for my dear sister. And then notice what happens. <laughs> this wonderful daughter, gimme, gimme, just uh, too repeated a couple of times in the passage. This sweet thing goes to her dad and um, They've settled in a dry place, and so she, she's looking for the oceanfront property, as it were. She's, she's looking for waterfront property in this dry and arid land. And so she says, well, since, you know, kind of we're the first ones here, we get to, like, choose where my dream house is going to be built, um, I'm going to go ask Daddy for the best piece of property. And, uh, and uh, 
Dad, I, I want a field, but, but since you've called us to live in a dry place, can you, can you give me a place of water, which is an extreme blessing in that area, um, worth more than gold or silver or anything else. And he doesn't just give her a place with water. Notice what it says. He gives her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now, when Caleb steps up, or when Caleb's nephew steps up, when Othniel steps up, I mean, he thinks he's going to get a good deal. I mean, he's, he's getting Oxa, I mean, and he's, he's getting uh, brought into this aristocracy, this family of faith here, Caleb. I mean, Caleb and Joshua, you know, the two um, aristocrats of the faith, so to speak, as they move into this new season, and he's being brought in. And, he, and, and that's a great deal. And uh, he doesn't ask, he doesn't think or imagine of anything else. But notice he gets in, he gets even greater than his wife even thinks or asks or imagines. She just says, "I'd like a little place with you know some water," and he gives her the upper and lower springs, like the breadth of provision that I can get. I mean, above and beyond anything you could ask or imagine, he just gives her. What did Jesus say about that? He said, "You being earthly." and being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids. How many of you, you love to, that's the greatest temptation and the greatest uh, difficulty sometimes as a father is I just want to spoil my kids. I just want to, you know, they set their hearts on something and I have to discipline myself not to just give them everything that they ask for. But Caleb doesn't say, gimme, 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 you're such a selfish little girl. I mean, I provided for you a husband already, and I already gave you this choice piece of the land. You know, like, he's not a stingy father. He's a loving father who wants to give good gifts to his child. And so he gives her above and beyond anything she could ask or imagine. And notice they also rename the city. Kiriath Safer means city of the scroll. It was uh, believed to be like ancient Alexandria, the, the city of learning where the great library was in, uh, in Greece and uh, that the Romans burnt down, but it was this great uh, educational center where, where all of the world's wisdom was being collected. The wisdom of the world was, was epitomized in this city, and they come to the city of the scroll and they rename it Debir, which means the word. So they replaces the, the wisdom of the world with the word of God. And some believe that this is what Paul had in mind when he said in Corinthians, our weapons and our warfare are not of the flesh. We, although we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. We destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of, law, of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Again, the obedience of faith. And so here is an Old Testament example of a man who's seeking to bring every thought captive to the obedience of God's Word. And he doesn't just uh, learn about it, he actually lives it out. He's willing to sacrifice, he's willing to step out in faith, he's willing to risk his own life for the joy set before him. Othniel stepped out in faith. And Othniel later will become, in this book, 
the first judge, the first deliverer that God raises up to deliver the nation. God just honors this man's faithfulness. This Gentile proselyte who's come to faith in the God of Judah, whose name means God is my strength. But he's a Kenizzite. He's not an Israelite. He's not a Semite. Somewhere along the line, maybe when the nation went down to Egypt and everybody was starving, the world was in a famine and Egypt had food, maybe the Kenizzites went down and they met some of these uh, Judaites and uh, these Israelites and saw God's favor on the people of God in the land of Goshen and somehow he aligned himself. Caleb means dog. I had a dog named Dog. I had a dog named Caleb. Um, it's the Hebrew word for dog. It's what the Jews would refer to the Gentiles as. They called them the dogs. It was a derogatory term. And that was Caleb. And it was an illustration of how God uses the weak things of the world and the, des- things of, the despised things of the world, the things that are not to, to, hum- to shame the wise. And, and here in this book of Judges, he starts going down actually elevating Caleb. This Gentile who has faith. Othniel, this Gentile who has faith, who's going to become the first judge. Later on, if you continue the story, the next one is the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, the Kenites. The Kenites and the Kenizzites are the first two Gentile nations mentioned in Genesis 15. After the Melchizedek incident in Genesis 15, God renews his covenant with Abraham. And he says, I'm going to give you the land, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites. I'm going to give to you. And now these two Gentile, non-Jewish, somehow they've aligned themselves with the strong man of Judah. And they're being used by God. And that's what happens to us when we step out in faith. There is a greater Othniel that we sing about this morning. I love the liturgy and the song here. Uh, it just enriches my soul because it just rehearses the gospel over and over and over again. But when we come to faith, God gives us the upper and the lower springs, blessings of heaven and earth, as, the, um, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He, Jesus said, He who believes in me, I will give him springs of living water. And of this he spoke of as the Spirit. Jesus, for the joy set before him, stepped out in faith and obtained a bride, you and me. And as the bride of Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. We've been given the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance to the praise of his glory. We as Gentiles were strangers and aliens to the covenants and the promises of God, but because we have aligned ourselves with the strong one of Judah, he has made us family and he has fellowshiped with us and slept with us and he is now, uh, as it says in Ephesians uh, 3.2, to him who is able to do far abundantly all, above all that we can ask 
or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory through all, all generations. He's blessed us with the upper and the lower springs. He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have been blessed with Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that he adopted us to the praise of his glorious grace. And all that he uh, asks of us is not to just simply trust him in the beginning, but to trust him in the end. That we not just begin our relationship with God as an initial decision of faith, but that every day become a decision of faith. That we wouldn't make a once-in-a-lifetime decision, but we would make a lifetime of decisions to follow God faithfully, to trust him who is trustworthy, who has never failed us. Though we are faithless, he is faithful and you can trust him, even when it's hard, even when you don't understand, even when it doesn't make sense. God calls us to, be obedient, to bring about the obedience of faith. And the way that he does it is he points us to the cross. And he says, when you don't understand, when it doesn't make sense, when you think that all your hope is lost because the one you'd put your hope in is now crucified, dying, and bleeding on a cross, we thought he was the one who was going to bring about the redemption of Israel, the the disciples on the road to Emmaus said, and he said, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to have faith and believe. See, God can turn our greatest tragedy, whether it be in judges, whether it be in the land of the Canaanites, or where it be on the hill of Calvary. He can take our greatest tragedy and turn it into our greatest blessing. So great is his sovereignty. And he says, look to the cross and have faith. When you when you, when find yourself struggling to do and to, to bring about the obedience of faith in your life, look to the cross and allow the cross to renew your faith in the greatness and the goodness and the kindness and the glory of who God is and the power and his might, his goodness to you, his power to provide for you and to bless you, even when the circumstances all around you would seem to tell you everything different when the wisdom of this world is telling you everything contrary that you say no this is not Kiryaf Sefer this is Debir I'm putting my faith in the word of God become flesh he demonstrated God's goodness towards me by dying for me he demonstrated God's power towards me by overcoming my own sin by overcoming crucifixion through his resurrection and that hope is now renewed in my heart. He calls us when we struggle to bring about the obedience of faith in our own life to again put our faith in the strong one of Judah who didn't just risk his life, but for the joy set before him, he laid it down that he might take it up again and that he might rise us with him. Amen? That's what he calls us to do. And so this morning we have the great privilege to do that very thing, to renew our hearts by faith in Jesus by partaking of bread and wine with the ultimate Melchizedek. So let's pray to his holy name as we prepare our hearts. Father, thank you for the opportunity to renew our hearts and to remind us about your goodness and your greatness, your power, your kindness, your love, your mercy. 
Thank you that you've given us examples that these things were written for our instruction, that through the uh, instruction of Scripture, our hearts might be encouraged to endure, that it might bring about the obedience of faith. Father, for those of us who struggle to believe, to, to step out in faith and to do what we know we ought to do, who struggle to make foolish decisions into wise ones, we pray that during this time that you would renew our hearts and our minds and that you would uh, fill us with your spirit as we again put our faith in Jesus Christ. We ask this for our good, for your